If you have your Bibles, turn to Galatians 4, or as always, you can follow along in the bulletin as well. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 to 7. Galatians 4, 4 to 7 says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you and we ask you, Father, in your love and in your mercy that you would open up our minds to understand your truth today. That you would open up our hearts not only to understand cognitively but also that we would feel the beauty and the weight and the glory of this truth and be impacted at a heart level, at an affection level, that we would know the truth and love the truth and be transformed by it today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm in the middle of a sermon series, short series that I've entitled Foundational Truths That Transform or Foundational Truths for Transformation. The first message dealt with the, the power of Christ's work on our behalf on the cross through his resurrection where Christ has become to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. He has become everything to us and therefore we are to boast in him and not in ourselves. And then we looked at this, this idea, not idea, this truth that we have received new life from the Spirit and we are also to, to have a new walk in and by the same Spirit. We looked at Galatians 5.25 that says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit or walk by the Spirit. And today I want to look at another important truth that I think is transformative. Um, J.I. Packer begins a chapter in his book, Knowing God, by asking the following question, what is a Christian. What is a Christian? And he answers this way. The question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know is, is, is that a Christian is one who has God as his father. A Christian is one who has God as his father. How does that land on you? Do you think much about being a child of God. Jesus made this primary in one of the most famous verses in the Bible. And I'm not thinking of John 3.16, but it's up there, just under John 3.16 perhaps. John 14.6, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, for many years, I knew that verse. I knew all of it. I knew the whole thing. I still do. But subconsciously, 
I thought it was communicating that what Jesus came to do or that Jesus was the exclusive way to heaven or that Jesus was the exclusive way to eternal life, the exclusive path to eternal life. Well, that is true. He is. But John 14, 6 is highlighting something else. He is the only way to the Father. Jesus came to bring us back to the Father. Jesus came to bring us home, as it were, to the Father. Jesus came, according to Hebrews 2.10, to bring many sons to glory. Adoption might be the highest privilege in the gospel. Maybe the most centrally important blessing of the gospel is the, 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 the doctrine of justification. We've talked about that here as well. Justification has to do with how does a sinner get right with God, right? It, ha- it deals with legal issues like breaking God's law and guilt and condemnation and how we can be pardoned and justified. But adoption deals with our alienation from God and how God reconciles enemies and makes them his beloved children. Adoption is a filial or family relational reality. We're brought into God's family not part way, not most of the way, but all the way and forever. Again, J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, said the following. He said, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship, his prayers, and his whole outlook on life, perhaps it means he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Jesus Christ came to restore us to God our Father. The relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, this relationship between God the Father, God the Son, is the most glorious and precious relationship in all of the universe. Now perhaps perhaps you've heard people say something like, well, everyone's a child of God. It's not uncommon to hear that. Everybody's a child of God. Every person born into the world is equally a child of God. Have you ever heard someone say that before? It's not true. It's not true. Everyone is made in God's image. In that sense, everyone has intrinsic value because we're image bearers of God, but not everyone is a child of God because we're not, we're not, we don't become children of God by natural birth, but by spiritual birth. We become children of God through faith in Jesus Christ as a consequence of being born again by the Spirit, being born of God. Galatians 3.26 says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Okay, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. It is in Christ Jesus and through faith that we become sons 
daughters, children of God. So, um, that was all introduction, okay? Let's jump into our text. What does the text say? Um, Here's the big idea of this passage that I just read a bit ago. Gospel adoption, the truth of our adoption, the doctrine of, of our adoption is the Father, Son, and Spirit working in perfect harmony with one another to bring children of God into the love, protection, assurance, and full privileges of God's family forever. Let me say that again. Gospel adoption is the Father, Son, and Spirit working in perfect harmony to bring children of God into the love, protection, assurance, and privileges of God's family forever. Now I hope... I hope you saw it in the passage too, but I hope you also just saw it or heard it in my description of what this passage is about. I hope you heard the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Because this passage clearly shows us that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all at work in our adoption. There's this British, British theologian named Michael Reeves, and he said something like, I, I'm not going to get this exactly right, but he said something like, the more Trinitarian our salvation, the sweeter. In other words, the more we see, and, and it's not hard to see, especially when you begin seeing it, you start seeing it everywhere. The more we see the Father, Son, and Spirit all working, it's not just what Jesus did, but the Father and the Son and the Spirit all working together in unity for our salvation. The more we see that, the more we taste it, our salvation becomes sweeter and sweeter and sweeter. Well, it doesn't get any more Trinitarian than this passage. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit all working together for your adoption, and I would add this, and your enjoyment of being adopted. So what I want to do is I want to just work our way through this passage and see what the Father is at work or has done, see what the Son has done, see what the, the ministry and work of the Holy Spirit is, and then um, I want to spend a chunk of time at the end just thinking through if this is true, which it is, I mean, I hope you see that it is. If we believe this, what are the implications for our lives? Okay, so let's look at First, the overflowing love of the Father directing and initiating our adoption. Second, we're going to see the sufficient work of Christ the Son to purchase or redeem us so that we can be adopted into God's family. And third, we're going to see the Spirit's inward ministry and witness of our adoption. So first, the Father. The Father overflows in love. We sang it earlier, and it really stood out to me. Felt the love of the Father. The first first verse of that, well, I think it's just one verse, where it says, I've encountered the Spirit, felt the love of the Father, found my life in the Savior, and I've been changed forever. Those first three lines, they all communicate something more than just... um, cognizant information or cognizant knowledge but experience and that phrase felt the love of the father sometimes us guys touchy-feely things we're like eh, i don't know about that you know 
But Christians are not Stoics, right? We're not Stoics. Have you felt and known the love of the Father in this deep way? Verse 4 says this, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. We are wrong if in any way we view God as tight-fisted and stingy rather than open-handed and generous to his children. Right? It's only an ingrate who has such a view of God. Romans 8.32, my favorite verse. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him, with the son, give us all things? He didn't spare his own son. He is not stingy. He is overflowing, free and overflowing in his benevolence toward us, in his richness and bounty toward his children. Now, this opening phrase of verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, this speaks of intention, of deliberateness. This speaks of a plan. The father had a plan that was being carried out, an adoption plan. Isn't it wonderful that our father in heaven is not making his way through history, shooting from the hip as he goes? Just trying to figure out from moment to moment, what should I do next? What should I do next? What's, what's now? That's the way some of us live our lives, right? I mean, some, some families maybe, but especially probably guys, the, we, we get up and say, hey, let's take a trip today, you know, or something like that. And, and you're, if you're married, your wife's like, what are you talking about today? Well, we might do that, but God does not operate that way. God was working out a plan in the fullness of time, it says. Stunningly, Ephesians, 5, excuse me, Ephesians 1, 5 um, says just how ancient this plan is. Check this out. It says this. In love, God the Father predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Now, I know there's a lot there. But you heard the word predestined. It's kind, of a creepy, it's kind of a spooky word for somebody. It just means God's eternal plan in the past. Okay, God had an eternal plan. And the plan was adoption. To adopt us to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. And he did this in love. If you are a believer in Christ, and I mean a genuine true believer with saving faith in Jesus, it is true, it is a true statement that if, if you are to think, how long has God loved me? The true answer is he has forever. Because he predestined us in love to be adopted. It's stunning. It's amazing. So, there's an eternal plan. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. I love that. At just the right time, according to God's plan, at just the right time, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. The word translated sent forth means to be sent with commissions or to be sent with a specific purpose. Of course, we know what the purpose was. It was to redeem lost 
sinners, rebels, so that we could be part of God's family, so that Jesus Christ could be the firstborn among many brothers. That's what he was sent to do. So we see the Father initiating and very deliberately planning our salvation. Then in the fullness of time, he sends his Son. But that's not all the Father initiates. Later in verse 6, it says this, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts. I mean, you see the Father, this is his plan. He wants many sons, many children. Okay, D- women, don't get offended, okay? You're, you're part of the sons, okay? Many sons, many daughters, many children in his family. And so, what does he do? Because we're children, because Christ has done the work to redeem us, he sends the Spirit into our hearts. The Father does this. And what was God's great motivation in all of this? It was love. It was his love. It was his overflowing love. In love, God predestined us to be adopted as sons. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It's all because motivated by God's merciful, gracious love. You gotta add this, for the undeserving. Not for, love, not, for, not for lovely people, but for rebels. It's stunning. It's amazing. 1 John 3.1, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God and such we are. I heard somebody explain um, when it says see how greater, I think the ESV, this was New American Standard, that's how I remember learning it many years ago. ESV says what manner of love is this? And I heard somebody say when it says what manner of love, it's like asking what planet is this love from? This is other worldly kind of love that we would be called children of God and so we are adoption begins with the father overflowing in love and there and then and then we come to the work of Christ the sufficient work of Christ verses 4 and 5 in the fullness of time God sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus Christ came and accomplished redemption so that we could be adopted. That word redemption, you hear that, and of course that communicates that we've been purchased back from, from being enslaved enslaved to the devil, enslaved to our sin, enslaved to lawlessness. And he redeemed us. Jesus was born of a woman. That's the language of incarnation, the eternal son of God. He's always been God, but in the fullness of time, he became man. Didn't cease to be God. Didn't become a little less than God. Just became fully human as well. Born of a woman, Born under the law. For Jesus to come and become a man, he humbled himself 
to the point of becoming just like us in every way except without sin, and he took the form, of uh, Philippians 2 says, of a slave. He was born under the law. This points, of course, to the perfection of Christ's obedience to the law. He was born under the law so that he might do what we could never do, which was obey God's law. You know, I gotta admit, there are times when I hear the way that some people talk about God's law, like his commandments, and it sounds like they think it's a bad thing. The law is not bad. The problem is we are, and we can't keep it. But Christ came to fulfill the law. He came to obey it at every point, and not for himself because he didn't need to. He did it for us. So Jesus was born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. That's you and I. We're, we're under the law, but we're lawbreakers. Christ is the perfect lawkeeper for lawbreakers. So Jesus came to redeem. But here's, here's what I want to just explore a bit more. What was the goal of this redemption? And I think we have to get this. Now, now I've said adoption, and that's true. But I want us to think more about this. Jesus came to accomplish something rich and deep here. He redeems us so that we may be adopted as sons. But here's what I think that means that we need to understand. He redeems us so that we may share what he already has as a son. He redeems us so that he might share his status as son with God. Now, Jesus will always have that unique relationship, right? He's the eternal son of God. You and I are not. We don't become divine in any way, but he shares the the closeness of this relationship that could only be if we are in Christ and he shares his sonship with us. Jesus shares his relationship with the Father with us. And I think this gets to the core of this high and glorious privilege of adoption. It's not just that we're adopted, but then resigned to the spare bedroom, only to come out every once in a while on special occasions. No, no, not at all. We are adopted and given full rights of adopted sons. It's amazing. Now I think we're going to see this more as we look at the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Verse 7 reiterates this when it says, you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then you are an heir through God. Now do you see the logic there? You're not a slave anymore, you're a son. Right? If you're in Christ, you're not a slave, you're a son. And if you're a son, then you're also an heir. With full rights of your inheritance in Christ. In other words, you have received the full privileges of sonship because the eternal son shares his very sonship with you. Listen to what Jesus prays to the Father in John 17, verses 22 and 23. 
he prays this, the, the glory, so he's praying to the Father, the glory that you have given me, I, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me, listen to this, and that you have loved them as you love me. <laughs> that the Father loves us even as he loves Christ. Because we are in Christ, we share this relation, he, he shares this relationship with us that he has with the Father. The Father loves us even as he loves the eternal Son, Jesus Christ. So, our adoption is fully accomplished through Christ, coming in the flesh, obeying perfectly on our behalf, and dying to redeem us. Let's look at the, the Spirit's ministry and witness. Verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. We've talked about the overflowing love of the Father. We've talked about the work of the Son. There needs to be the work within us to make us alive to this truth. And I was going to say to make this truth alive to us, but that's not really the point. The truth is alive. The question is, are we alive to it? We need the inward work and ministry of the Spirit to awaken us. We sang it earlier. I mean, right? Spirit of the living God, come awaken our souls. To awaken us to this truth. Well, that's the work of the Spirit. The Father sends Him into our hearts. Now, I think it's fascinating. The Father does not merely send the Spirit down from heaven. And he doesn't just send him in our direction generally and we kind of, kind of lasso him and bring him close to us. It doesn't say anything about what we need to do to bring him into our hearts. It says the Father sends the Spirit directly into the hearts of children of God. I can't help but make the connection between this and Romans 5, 5 where it says this, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. The Father wants us to know, to truly know, the overflowing love, the love that motivated him to send his only son to redeem us. And so what does he do? He sends the Spirit into our hearts. And the reason why is because the best ministry of the Holy Spirit is the, kind of, is the ministry that he does inside of you. The work of transforming our hearts so that we no longer act like rebellious orphans, but like dearly loved children. The Holy Spirit also gives language to us, right? He gives us the ability to voice what he's doing in us. Verse 6 uh, seems to say that it's the Holy Spirit who cries, Abba, Father. Romans 8.15 8, puts it a little different way. It says that it's by the Holy Spirit that we cry, Abba, Father. I think it's safe to say the Holy Spirit puts this cry within us and we cry, Abba, Father. 
Romans 8, 16, just the next verse after this cry, Abba, Father, says these wonderful words, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits, like the Holy Spirit bearing witness deep within us that we are children of God. And, and I think of it this way, right? Um, there's the witness of Scripture that we're God's children because God says so, right? He, we, we hear the gospel. We hear what God has done on our behalf through Christ. And if we believe in him, we can become children of God. And so that's the witness of Scripture. But then there's that inner witness of the Spirit. The Spirit bearing witness with our spirits that we truly are children of God. Martin Lloyd-Jones used this analogy of a father and a son walking down the street, a father and probably a young son, like I think of my Grayson, two, three years old, walking down a sidewalk, holding hands. They love each other. The son knows the father loves him. They're just enjoying fellowship, holding hands, walking down the sidewalk. And every once in a while, the father sweeps the son up in his arms and embraces him and kisses him and says, oh, I love you. And he says, I think that's what this inner witness of the Spirit is like. Where the Father embraces us and gives us this deep inner witness through His Spirit. You're mine. You're my beloved child. I love you. May He do so this morning. This is the unique ministry of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness. This is His ministry. And this is such a powerful and rich and deep assurance that he wants us to have that we truly are children of God. And, and not that we, may, that we are now, but we may not be in 10 years. But that if we are, we are his forever. You know, I've been to, well, with the rise, several adoption uh, proceedings at the courthouse, and I love the language of forever family. You're not part of my family. It's not, we're not bringing you in for five years and we're not seeing how this works. We're committed. You're ours forever. And that's the way God views his children. We belong to him forever. Now, the word Abba is a term of endearment, meaning basically dear, so Abba Father means dearest Father. It's a term of love and intimacy. And interestingly, the only other person you hear use that term in all the Bible is Jesus. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before his crucifixion, Jesus is, a pre- is praying and he addresses God as Abba. He says, Abba, all things are in your hands. If it's possible, let this cup pass for me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. This doctrine of adoption, this re- doctrine, that sounds so formal. I mean, it is a doctrine, but this reality of adoption is the loftiest, the highest privilege of the gospel. Now, 
if you and I believe this, what effects should it have on our lives? What implications are there for how we live? There are many. I just want to cover a few. Let's start here. General outlook on life. Should it have an impact on that? Massive. Massive. Right? This will have massive implications for your general outlook on life, how you view your life, your future in this world, and of course, eternally. We all know that the world is a different place than it was three years ago, right? It just is. So many things have changed, so many things are changing, and when we look toward the future, many do so with fear, anxiety, anger, For instance, when we think about the political forecast, it looks cloudy, some storms ahead, and we might get a little anxious and fearful or angry. When we look, about the, when we look at the economic forecast in the future, it looks like there might be some rough times ahead, and we might get anxious, fearful, angry, We could envision another health crisis that would affect all of us in some way. And then, of course, we have all of our personal concerns as well. Our own personal health and work and relations and so forth. All of this. I saw a number recently that just shocked me. And I'm sure it's gone up over the last two years from what it was prior. But, um, you know, it didn't shock It alarmed me. It probably didn't shock. I mean, it wasn't overly surprising, but it was alarming. It was this. 18% of American adults struggle with some sort of anxiety disorder. Not that they kind of struggle with anxiety internally like all of us probably do have or do it sometimes, but an actual diagnosed disorder, which I assume means they're on regular medicine for it and so forth. 40 million American adults. That's a ton of people. And most, or all, I assume all, are on some sort of regular medication. Many are Christians, no doubt. Now listen, I'm not taking aim at all use of medication, only highlighting how our nation is riddled with fear and anxiety riddled with it. And no doubt, many Christians are as well. Those who say they have God as their father. And I'm just wondering, is it possible for us to face the future unafraid? Not anxious. Precisely because we know that God is our father. Can Psalm 112.7 describe us when it says, he, speaking of this man who fears God, he is not afraid of bad news? Of course. I think we have to say, yes, it's possible. Is it, po- is it possible? Yes, it's possible. Anxiety or fear is as old as sin. 
I was going to say as old as dirt, but I suppose that's not true because before sin in the garden, there was dirt. But ever since sin entered the world, there's been fear and anxiety. Listen to what Jesus says, Matthew 6. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? You fill in the gaps. How are we going to provide all of that, right? And he says, for the Gentiles seek after all of these things. And here's the kicker. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. He knows what you need. We, as beloved children of God, can live securely, fully assured, bold, because God is our Father and will care for us. Do you agree with that? Now, it doesn't mean we're going to be spared from hard circumstances. In fact, we won't be. Think about all of our favorite heroes of the faith. They are not our heroes because they somehow figured out a way to go through life unscathed by difficulties. None of those people are heroes of the faith. They're heroes of the faith because they suffered persecution, hardship, injury, loss, and through Christ, overcame it. So we won't be spared from hard circumstances, but if God is our Father, we can have confidence, absolute confidence, that our Father is ruling over those circumstances for our good. Remember at the baptism of Jesus, the, remember when Jesus was baptized, we see, I love it, it's another trinity, right? The Father, Son, and Spirit, right there. Jesus is baptized, he comes up out of the water, water the Spirit descends, and then there's the word of affirmation from the Father. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then what did Jesus do right after that? He went into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days. He started down the path that would inevitably lead on Calvary, being crucified. Here's the deal. If you are in Christ, because of Christ, the Father speaks the loving words over you. You are my beloved son, my beloved daughter. And yes, I believe he even says, I am well pleased in you. And so if the future looks like more of the, cra- more of the same crazy that we've had, be of good cheer. We can say, there's that old song, I love that song, um, the song, This Is My Father's World. There's this line that says this, This is my Father's world. Oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God I would would add, our Father is the ruler yet. So this ought to have a massive influence on our outlook on life, just generally. 
What about our ethics and morals? What about our conduct? This truth will have huge implications for our conduct. You've heard the saying, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, right? Sometimes that's said positively, sometimes negatively, depending on who you are and who your dad was, right? Um, Well, as we grow more and more in Christ, this ought to be true of us as sons and daughters of God. Now, it needs to be said, of course, that we are not brought into the family because of our conduct, but if we are born of God, we will want to, and we, in fact, will increasingly conduct ourselves as his children, as God's children. We will want to, and more and more, in fact, we will conduct ourselves as part of God's family. But I also want to add this. It is also our duty to conduct ourselves as part of God's family. We have exalted in the immense and high privilege of being, God, being called God's children, but there's a corresponding duty and responsibility that if we name the name of Christ, if we say, I am a child of God my Father, there is a duty and responsibility to conduct ourselves in a certain manner in this world. Here's the way Paul put it. Be imitators of God as beloved children. Okay? As a beloved child, be an imitator of God. Not in order to become a beloved child, but as a beloved child of God. Because you are a dearly loved child. Because God has sealed you with the Spirit. He's put His mark on you. He's given you His name. Now, conduct your life in a manner worthy with that. It's like a wealthy king who goes out and adopts some hopeless orphan. He brings her into his palace. He makes her a full heir, right? He gives her, he brings her to her bedroom and shows her her new wardrobe and says, these are all your new clothes. Take off those tattered rags and put something new on. It's her privilege to do so, to put on the new clothes that he provides for her, but it's also her responsibility to do that. She now is a daughter of the king. And you and I, it's the same. God has given us, metaphorically speaking, a new wardrobe. Right? Ephesians 4 talks about putting off the old man, renewing your mind, putting on the new man, putting off the old behaviors, renewing your mind, and putting on these new behaviors, this new conduct as children of God. First Peter 1.15 says, But as he who called you is holy, so you also must be holy in all your conduct. So, this has an impact on our conduct. Day-to-day life. What about, let me just quickly go through this. What about prayer? Does knowing that we're dearly loved children, does that have implications for prayer? Enormous. Enormous. The transformative truth, this transformative truth will massively impact the way that you pray. Now, my understanding is this. The pattern of prayer in the New Testament, this is not a law. It's not a rule. 
But the pattern of prayer is that we pray to the Father through Jesus in the Spirit. Okay? Of course we can pray to Jesus. I do. I know that you do as well. We can pray to the Spirit. We can. We should. But the pattern is we address the Father. We come to the Father. We come through Jesus and his finished work on our behalf and we come in the Spirit with his help and his strength. I heard somebody put it this way, that it's like, prayer's like there's a destination, there's a road we take, and there's a car we drive in. The destination's the Father, the road we take is Christ, the car we drive in is the Holy Spirit. What did Jesus teach us about prayer? Who does he teach us to address? Our Father in heaven. Let me encourage you to do something. And um, I know you could take this too far. It could become legalistic. But I want to encourage you to practice praying to God as Father. Not just as God. He is God. No doubt he's God. Not just as Lord. He is Lord. But Jesus says when you pray, right? His disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. He said, all right, here we go. When you pray, Say, our Father. Of course, as we grow in this, it will help our hearts with the appropriate attitudes toward God as well. There would be reverence for him. There would be love for him. Reverence because he's our Father. He's an authority. But also tenderness and love because he's our Father, meaning he loves us and is tender toward us. Finally, last thing. This has implications for the church. And I I mean primarily the local church. Of course, the church universal, but primarily the local church. You've been brought into God's family, generally the church, and you've been brought into a local fellowship, a local church, where that, the family dynamics really are played out in more intimacy and closeness and relationship. You are a child of God, and I am a child of God, and you are a child, and we're all children of God here through faith in Christ. What does that make us? Brothers and sisters closer brothers and sisters than our blood brothers and sisters. Isn't that interesting? And Jesus highlighted that. He said, who's my brother, my sister, my mother? It's the one who does the will of God. <laughs> even, o- even over his, his blood brother and his own dear mother. We are brothers and sisters, heirs of the same inheritance indwelt by the same spirit of adoption, purchased by the same blood of Jesus, given the same name of our Father in heaven. And we're going to spend eternity together. And remember, Jesus, when he teaches us to pray to to God as Father, he teaches us very specifically. He doesn't teach us to pray my, my Father. He is my Father. But he teaches us to pray our Father. Amen? All right, let's pray.